0: Well, good afternoon everyone. Welcome to the Stern Policy Center at the Hudson Institute. It's a great pleasure to have you all here. My name is Peter Rao. I'm a fellow here at Hudson, and I have the privilege of moderating what I'm sure is going to be an outstanding panel with three uh, very interesting and different speakers who come from different backgrounds and uh, different areas of expertise. To my immediate left is uh, my colleague at Hudson, Brendan Brown, who's a non-resident senior fellow here. He is the Chief Economic Advisor to Mitsubishi UFJ Securities International in London. Also has an affiliation as an Associate Scholar with the Mises Institute in uh, Auburn, Alabama, and also uh, in Brussels, as I was just uh, informed uh, recently. He uh, is an expert in international monetary theory, the Austrian School in particular. He um, is an expert in Japanese monetary theory. He is a student of international Uh, financial history, and has uh, published widely, been a commentator on CNBC and Bloomberg, and in uh, numerous uh, other outlets. Uh, To his left is Ted Bromond. Ted is um, the Anglo-American Senior Research Fellow in the Margaret Thatcher Center for Freedom at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, Ted is also an uh, associate professor or associate scholar at uh, Johns Hopkins SICE, where he has taught grand strategy, and before joining Heritage, she taught in the grand strategy program at Yale. Ted is one of the foremost experts on uh, Brexit and on the UK-US FTA, and so we're grateful that he's here with us uh, today. And then on the far left uh, is Samantha Job. She is the uh, political and security counselor at the British Embassy here in Washington. She's been with the Foreign and Commonwealth Office for 24 years, started off in Tunisia and Libya, This isn't her first stint in the US. She also worked at the UN mission, uh, the British mission uh, in New York, has worked on issues from the ICC, the International Criminal Court, to the Middle East peace process, to nonproliferation at the UN. And uh, we're very grateful that she's here to give us uh, the British point of view on the UK-US trade relationship, the looming FTA, as well as the broader security, economic, and political dimensions of Europe and the US. Just a quick note on housekeeping, we're scheduled to go until 2. I've asked each of the panelists to give about a 10-minute opening, and then we'll move to Q&A. And in order to facilitate that and make sure that we can get to the more interesting meaty part, the strategic questions that each of them will address, I thought I would just give a very quick TikTok overview, blow-by-blow, of how we uh, arrived at the present moment. Um, A year ago, in 2016, I think the first real major political shock, electoral shock of the year, was the June 23rd referendum, the Brexit referendum, which the British people decided to uh, exit the European Union. It spelled the end of the Cameron government and uh, made way for Prime Minister May, who has spent the last eight months uh, deciphering exactly what Brexit means, Brexit actually means. We heard her at Lancaster House in London, building upon the themes that she outlined in Birmingham at the Conservative Party conference in October, and uh, has decided, as far as we know, uh, in the rough sketches that we have thus far, that. Uh, Number one, the UK is going to take back control of its borders and take back control of its judicial system, which means, of course, exiting the single market since uh, the free movement of people, the free movement of of workers in the Treaty of Rome is one of the requirements for the single market. It also means um, that the ECJ uh, will no longer have the regulatory writ it does over the British economy, that the British court system will now be adjudicating those questions. And uh, relatedly, she has also announced that Britain will, in some form or another, exit the customs union, which means striking a series of free trade agreements, not only one with Europe, which she has announced, but also with the Americas, Asia, and elsewhere, which takes me to the second big political shock of 2016, and that, of course, is the election of one of the few people who accurately forecasted Brexit, Donald Trump, as President of the United States. And so, uh, after the President's inauguration, the first head of government to visit the U.S., was Prime Minister May, and I think many of the subjects they discussed, as far as we know from the press reporting, was what one would have heard from a Cameron Clinton uh, meeting, with the notable exception of a U.S.-U.K. FTA. So uh, that is, by and large, uh, the state of play on the continent. There has been preparations amongst the remaining EU-27 for these negotiations. There's now talk of uh, Article 50, of course, being invoked this month of the Lisbon Treaty, which is the method by which one exits the European Union, and then we will have uh, an 18-month negotiation or so. But to set the scene, to give us an overview maybe of the political economy of Europe, I thought um, on the real strategic questions I would turn to uh, Brendan for his uh, remarks. So go ahead, Brendan. is yours?
1: Well thank you very much Peter for your introduction. Um, I think the Trump administration faces an essential dilemma in plotting its path towards Europe. Um, For European hegemon Germany is determined under its present chancellor to preserve the status quo as defined by the EU and monetary union. Um, There's no going back from Merkel's point of view, um, her last 20 years has been invested in this project, and to tell the Germans now that it was all, mis- all a mistake is clearly uh, going to be a political loser and a moral loser in every way for her. Um, Merkel and Draghi, in many ways, are the unloving couple <laughs> on which the status quo in Europe depends. Um, Merkel needs Draghi to do all the backdoor operations of of, of supporting um, banks and sovereigns without it being explicit. And of course, Draghi needs Merkel, because without German backing, European monetary union would collapse. Um, And yet from a global or American point of view, this status quo is clearly non-tenable monetarily, um, everything can hold together when there's a fantastic bubble going in glo- on in global markets and credit spreads are at the lowest ever. But at the first sign of trouble or the next financial meltdown or crash, the European monetary co- architecture is really in, in mortal danger. So the question for the Trump administration is, is it best, meanwhile, not to engage with German Chancellor Merkel given the status quo she's fighting for is untenable, and wait to see what happens, and meanwhile concentrate on the special relationship with the UK. Let's go ahead with the traditional ally, Britain, in negotiating free trade deal, Um, and maybe that can become a model for deals elsewhere, particularly with Japan, and maybe even we get a Japan-UK trade deal. Um, And engage with Germany at a later date when we see what's happening in the European status quo and what happens. Um, that's quite a tempting approach. Um, first, bring a, 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 a reinforcement of the status quo. It's not impossible, although it certainly wouldn't be my central scenario, that we see some sort of social democrat, CDU coalition re-emerging, and, 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 and the status quo is sustained, although it was still the question as to what happens in the next financial crisis or meltdown. Um, second, it's far from clear how well-founded and present economic reality a U.K.-U.S. alliance is. It was one thing to have a U.K.-U.S. alliance under Reagan-Thatcher where both were committed to a free market ideology. Um, but it's not clear that we have a free market ideology being pursued in either country. Um, and there are potential frictions. Um, if London decides that the only way to sustain its um, financial um, Center is to go back to the 1960s, 70s models of an offshore center, tax haven, uh, deregulation. That could be direct competition to New York and a lot of the people who Trump, Trump has appointed in his, in his cabinet in particular. So it's not clear that's going to be a frictionless um, route um, either. Um, then we come on to the question of um, uh, Trump wants to do a deal with Putin, Um, that requires a key participation of Germany. After all, one of the elements in any bargain with Putin is access to German capital again. Um, It's best if the deal with Germany and Russia is coordinated with the U.S. um, and cooperative with the U.S., not a result of a special negotiation between Germany and Russia and a re, re, a sort of romantic relationship coming forward again um, and, and particularly um, given the interest of the Trump administration in in weaning um, Germany and mo- more particularly Russia off Iran um, so that that may conflict. Um, what re- em- emphasizes the need for Trump to develop a relationship with Merkel even although she may be fighting for an unsustainable status quo. Um, and then there's the contingency of what may go wrong with the euro. You know, we've been used to many, many years under the Obama administration where any crisis in the euro immediately brought the banner of this could be the next Lehman moment and um, a lot of US pressure on Germany to um, do whatever was necessary to avoid a blow up in in Europe. Um, In many ways, the Trump administration, one would hope, would be prepared for the next crisis. Um, And that requires having some vision um, to put forward, um, which might, in fact, be more acceptable in Germany, in many ways, than next time, pay up whatever it takes to keep the whole thing going. (laughs) Um, And then there's a question of France. Um, Ultimately, if and when the status quo does break in Europe, it's pretty hard to imagine Europe ever coming together again without a solid French-German relationship. So Trump has to nurture relationships with France um, in the realization that that is key to the rebuilding of a European um, integrated free, free market. Um, but in the process, um, if, if he goes too close to a German hegemon, that could annoy France. On the other hand, if he goes clo- too to uh, the relationship with France could build up a romanticism in France about what's possible. So there are all these dangers along the way. And um, in many ways, also, there's a question of currency war. We've already heard um, Trump administration complaining about currency manipulation in Japan and Europe. And there is a problem of currency manipulation, and that problem of currency manipulation is very one, much one of monetary manipulation. Um, Japan keeping long-term rates at zero, Europe keeping interest rates negative, persisting with QA well, well after sell date. And um, of course, both Britain and Europe are in the same boat in that respect. They're both manipulating currencies by sustaining monetary policies which are way past the sell date of, ne- of zero interest rates and, and, and QE. So um, that, that's another whole issue that has to be considered along the way. I think the the best prospect is that whilst waiting um, and, and seeing what happens, that the Trump administration would come out itself with some sort of um, uh, strategic vision as to the direction in which they would hope Europe and um, Britain would 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 go, um, and would um, put put a, put a lot a lot of um, thought into that. And and America, as the outside party here, has a opportunity to be honest about what's gone wrong. That's more difficult for the main protagonists or the main parties to any negotiation to admit. I mean, after all, in many ways, when we look back on the period since collapse of the Berlin Wall, um, one can see quite clearly that there was a um, the, the essential bargain between France and Germany to bring forward both monetary union quickly and East European integration quickly. Both went ahead in in badly thought out ways for which now Europe and European integration is paying the price. Um, I would just like to say finally, you know, that one... There's a comment recently by Neil Ferguson that after the American Revolutionary War, uh, many people wrote Britain off as no longer being a great power. And yet, within a decade or so, Britain was leading the Industrial Revolution. And I think there's a more general point here. Why did that happen? How did that happen? And, of course, you have to realize that the younger Pitt, who was a prime minister at that time, was was a keen disciple and reader of Adam Smith. Um, and he led the way towards free trade and what you would call today deregulation and against the big business interests and crony whatever they were. I think if one's looking at Europe rebuilding, Britain rebuilding, and of course America rebuilding after a period of long economic disappointment, a decade of disappointment, it's hard to imagine that succeeding without that sort of ideology. At that point, I'm glad to hand over.
2: Great. Thank you very much. Ted? Thank you. Uh, Peter, thanks very much for the invitation. Really uh, glad to take the opportunity to be here to uh, talk about an issue that's very near and dear to my heart, and uh, also to hear Brendan and Samantha's thoughts. Uh, Very much, very much interested in both of those. Uh, I I really agree almost completely with the way that uh, Brendan phrased uh, the the, the nature of the problem. Uh, I would just say about the status quo issue that the most demanding possibility, the most demanding approach in a world of change is the policy of the status quo. Trying to keep a status quo while everything else around you is changing is a policy that is absolutely doomed sooner or later to disappointment. It's not that it will not work after a while. It's that it can't work. Uh, And I very much agree with with the way Brendan has has phrased the central dilemma that's facing Germany. I would also add on the German front, before we plunge into Brexit, that I I think the difficulties in US-German relations are even broader than you suggest. Definitely on, on the currency side, uh, the manipulation question, I'll, I'll yield the floor entirely to you on that, the euro question, definitely. One I should also bear in mind, however, that Germany is absolutely central uh, to a European pillar in NATO, and it's spending 1.2% of its GDP on defense. And many people, I suspect President Trump among them, blame Chancellor Merkel for the refugee crisis. So if you want to see a crisis in U.S.-European relations forthcoming, the nation that's likely to feel the brunt of American complaints in a great many directions is absolutely not the U.K., and not not even maybe the traditional American whipping boy of France. It's much more likely to be Germany, because when you get from refugees to defense to finance— Germany is absolutely central to all of these questions. Uh, on the UK, uh, let me try to put the question of a US-UK FTA, which I've been asked to address in a little bit of a broader framework. The Cameron government did a lot of things on the international economic side that I don't think deserve—they don't think got as much recognition as they probably deserved. They almost—they came pretty close to having a very coherent international economic strategy in the context of EU membership which makes it impossible for the UK to have an actually separate trade strategy. What do I mean by that? They launched an initiative to revitalize UK trading links with South America, the Canning Initiative. I think that was only modestly successful. They continued uh, a previous Brown and Blair government effort at promoting Sharia-compliant finance in the city of London. Now, some people have raised some questions about this, Uh, But financially, it's been reasonably successful. Uh, The government reached out to India and tried to rebuild that relationship. And the Cameron government was famous, or maybe I would say notorious, uh, for trying to do deals with China. All of this, when you put it together, looks like the effort of a government that almost thought it might leave the EU and was doing as much as it could inside the the, the constraints of the EU to try to develop an independent foreign economic policy that wasn't solely reliant on Europe, either legally and bureaucratically or in the real world of trading and finance. So this was a long time coming. Now that Britain is going to exit the European Union, it is logical, and I say that I'm not at all surprised that they have decided to leave the single market and the customs union. Uh, what is the point of giving Liam Fox the job of negotiating lots of trade agreements if you're not planning on leaving these entities? That, to me, was always in the cards. So a logical place to turn is, of course, the United States. It's my view that if Britain had not entered the not the, the EEC, not then the EU, in the 1970s, we would already have an FTA with the UK. Uh, after all, I mean, I say no ill of the nation of Jordan, But we have an FTA with Jordan. Uh, If we have an FTA with Jordan, I I think we would have had an FTA with the United Kingdom by this point. So the problem has always been, fundamentally, for reasons we all understand, on the British side. But I would immediately add that we should not approach this in a selfish sort of way. The British are not going to want just an FTA with the United States. Uh, I suspect that the first FTA that the UK signs will probably be Australia, New Zealand, and maybe Singapore. Uh, there are a lot of reasons uh, why that's a good choice. One of them is the governmental reason that these being parliamentary systems, they can act with a little bit more speed than ours is inclined to on matters of trade. And there are also, of course, enormous trade and historical and personal connections that, that make that an attractive option. But there will be other deals as well. Uh, I strongly, we haven't mentioned Canada. Strongly suspect Canada. We've already mentioned Japan. Japan has been mentioned. Uh, Liam Fox, as I think, mentioned that there are upwards of 35 nations that the British are already talking with. Now, it's interesting. It's I talked to various British diplomats and and non-diplomatic sources, and everyone has a different sort of valence on what you're allowed to do before you trigger Article 50, and what you're allowed to do in the two years after Article 50 is triggered. You know, are you allowed to have conversations? nudge, nudge, wink, wink negotiations? Um, Are you allowed just Mm -hmm. to chat informally? Everyone has a different sort of phraseology on this. And I I think one thing the British government maybe could do a slightly better job of is making it clear what it thinks the boundaries of the permissible are. Uh, In my view, backed up by some, though certainly not all, legal opinion in the United Kingdom, it is perfectly proper for the UK to negotiate after it triggers Article 50, provided it does not enter into any new training arrangements until it formally leaves the EU. That is the view that I would urge, and I I think it's a legal and a very common sense point of view as well. If you're going to get out, why would you not start negotiating? Let's talk more specifically about the the content of a US-UK agreement. The biggest immediate economic gain for the British leaving the EU has very little directly to do with the United States. It's the ability to again become an importer of cheap food. Getting out of the common agricultural policy and returning to Britain's traditional nineteenth century policy of free food imports. This is what this is what the Anti-Corn Law League, this is what free trade in Britain really meant in the nineteenth century, cheap bread. Maybe today when carbohydrates are bad, that was sort of a bad slogan. Uh, but This is the single biggest immediate gain, and it has very little to do with the United States, except insofar as one of the places that's a cheap food supplier is the United States. But this is not something that is really directly under the control of a U.S.-U.K. agreement, something the British can do unilaterally, and I very much hope they will. Uh, There are two sort of components to a U.S.-U.K. trade agreement, Everyone always says trade, and we think about the visible side right away. The visible side is important. Uh, US-UK trade, about $55 billion a year each way, almost perfectly balanced. Uh, the U.K. is a high-wage economy. We're a high-wage economy. There are no concerns about undercutting. We have very comparable standards on almost anything you'd care to name. So from that point of view, the US-UK deal on the visible trade side is pretty easy. How significant is it? It's economically significant, but for neither of us is it a revolutionary development. Uh, Our trade is already quite free, except in the agricultural realm, thanks to the common agricultural policy. Uh, It's already quite free, and the trade is already quite large. So a free trade agreement would be a net positive. I have no question about that. But it will not be revolutionary for the UK or for the United States. Both of us are too big for that to be a reality. The more interesting question, and the place where, I'm afraid, less real thought has been put in is on the financial side. Because uh, a friend once said to me, simple-minded people think about trade. Smart people think about investment. Because investment is where tomorrow's trade comes from, and a lot of other things that are going to come tomorrow as well. And I don't think there's been nearly enough discussion and thought on both the American and the British side of, What do we want to get out of this on the investment side? Let me just, in closing, suggest three possibilities. Uh, We could go for a very simple financial agreement that would simply say, you'd have to treatyize this language, but you'd simply say, look, realistically, the US is incredibly open to British finance. Do you know, by the way, that Britain has invested 1,000 times more in the private sector in the United States than China has? Worth bearing in mind. So obviously, we're very open to British finance. The UK is obviously very open to American finance. How about we just agree that we've got a really good thing going and we're not going to screw it up? Because we do have a really good thing going. And our primary goal should not be to make a mess of it. Well, we could do a very simple agreement based on that. Um, Or we could try to get a little bit more daring. Uh, We could say that industries in the city uh, and industries on Wall Street that are regulated by given regulatory authorities shall have free movement of peoples and free work visas. Between them, visas to last for a period of five years renewable, provided there is an agreed work contract available in the other place. Uh, So that's not free movement of peoples. It would be free movement of peoples within a a fairly tightly defined sector. But there is already a lot of movement of people between the city and Wall Street. Obviously, we have a language, at least we pretend we have a language, more or less in common. Uh, and it's already one of the gripes, uh, certainly that I hear from friends in the city, that it can be a little bit inconvenient uh, to get Americans in the city. It always works out in the end, but it's a little more tedious maybe than it needs to be. So for us, we go for some sort of work permit agreement in sectorally defined industries. If we do that, I would put in a brief plea that we do the same thing in higher education. Uh, which is another area where there's enormous transatlantic traffic, where frankly, I mean, my ad- my doctoral advisor was British. Most of the faculty I studied with were, were British. Uh, so we already hire lots and lots of British defills. How about we just regularize that? I once had a friend who taught in the American school in London and was relieved of her position because it was discriminant. You had to hire EU nationals uh, to teach. So she was replaced by someone from France in the American school in London. Maybe we could agree that that is a folly, and that in the education sector we should have a reasonably free movement of people as well. Uh, Or we could go for something even more daring. Uh, Maybe we say, listen, the city and London are the two most important financial centers of the world. Uh, A lot of the visible world is going down the internet of things road. How about we make the US and the UK the leader of the internet of payments? And we deliberately design a treaty that takes a sandbox approach to encouraging really radical experimentation in finance, not for the entire sector, uh, but that we, we deliberately try to allow a lot of experimentation in this environment and try to build on the advantages that we already have, make the US and the UK the most friendly place in the world, not just for trade, not just for investment, not just for the movement of people involved in investment, but for new ideas and innovative ideas about the financial sector writ large. Obviously, there are risks. At some point, they might even become systemic risks in that kind of experimentation, which is why I like the sandbox approach. But why don't we say, if you have an exciting idea in investment, come to Britain or come to the United States. And frankly, it doesn't really matter where you come, because we've got the same deal for you. So you work it out. That's the most ambitious idea. I suspect that we'll probably end up falling into none of those, and we might take a little bit from all three of them. Um, but you know, I appreciate the possibility that Brendan has raised for, for city Wall Street frictions. Uh, we should avoid the easy delusion of people who talk and write about the special relationship uh, pretending that we've never had any difficulties or arguments. Suez springs to mind. Just for an immediate start, a profound piece of American folly there. Uh, but there have been many other arguments and difficulties along the way. So special relationship is not code word for we always agree and we have exactly the same interests. That would be completely childish. Uh, what is, I hope, a word for is, by and large, we mostly find a way to get along for our mutual and general benefit better than any other people in the world. And I think we should continue doing that. The nation that I think in Europe that is going to have the not-special relationship with the United States is absolutely not the United Kingdom. It's Germany. There, I think, is the central challenge for U.S. policy towards Europe. For U.S. relations with the U.K., I see a lot of attractive possibilities. I very much hope we take advantage of them.
0: So it's just – just to quickly follow up on that, so it's, it's essentially your – strategic advice to table or altogether set aside net of some issues like the NHS and American company involvement for the purposes
2: of speed and alacrity in getting this deal done? Let's let's be grown up about this. Um, We all have our views about the NHS. Um, Britain will at some point, or it will not, as it desires to, uh, enact changes in the NHS. Um, Let's not try to, say, make part of the deal that the NHS has to prescribe American pharmaceuticals. Would that be a good thing on some abstract level? I have no doubt it would be. Would it be good for American companies? Yes, it would be. Uh, Is it liable to mess up the 90% of the good deal for the sake of 10% of the deal? Yes, it is. And by the way, it's not just the British who have sensitivities. We have sensitivities too. Do we want, for example, an FTA that would require states, cities, counties, to engage in completely open contracting. Contracting was a very big deal, still is, in the proposed, I think, dead US-EU trade deal known as TTIP. I have no doubt that American states and cities and counties should try to find the best deal for the taxpayer, and that frequently doesn't mean buying American. But this is a sensitive point for us, particularly within a federal system. By the way, we also don't like geographical indicators. You know, they make cheddar cheese in Wisconsin. You know, the Greeks hate the idea that we're making feta in the United States and want to stop us from calling anything feta. Um, so we're sensitive on geographical indicators. Um, how about we just agree that we all have certain points of sensitivity, some of which are not particularly economically rational, and we just agree like mature people to let them all drop. And maybe at some point in the future, we come back to some of these things. Um, The big gains are on tariffs in the really big sectors and on the investment side. All of the other fiddly stuff has the potential for 10% of the gains and 90% of the problems. So drop it. Great. Thanks, Samantha.
3: Still scribbling.
0: And I hope you don't feel the need to respond to everything that was said. Or, I, I'm or not going to respond to everything
3: said. that was said. I'm, I'm going to do the uh... – <laughs> no, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> um, we'll say it. I'm going to take a slightly different tack, which is to talk about the special relationship, which underpins all of this. Um, because I think it's it's very easy, as we've just heard, to think that um, doing a trade deal or an FTA will just be uh, super quick and easy. Our, all that – um, in this new era, the US and the UK want to be everybody's best friends, and therefore this deal can be done on the back of an envelope uh, in three weeks. There is no trade negotiator, or frankly negotiator, in the world who, work, who works like that. Everyone will go into this conversation with a lot of things that they want, a lot of things they don't want, a lot of grey areas in between, and it will take some time. And I quite like the approach of, can we just put some kind of fence around the sort of fiddly difficult bits? Um, but I expect there will be fiddly difficult bits, however we, we go into this. So it's absolutely right not to take a simplistic approach to it. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about what that underlying special relationship, uh, where it comes from. It's the anniversary this year. It's a nice thing to talk about. Um, and so I can't resist a Churchill quote because you can't really <laughs> talk about a special relationship without a Churchill quote. Um and I chose this one, which was when he said, we must never cease to proclaim in fearless tones the great principles of freedom and the rights of man, which are the joint inheritance of the English-speaking worlds, and through which the Magna Carta, the Bill of Rights, habeas corpus, trial by jury, and the English common law find their most famous expression in the American Declaration of Independence. And the reason I picked that quote is because that approach to the rule of law and the sort of freedoms and common values is what underpins it. Um, and yes, there are new political atmospherics on both sides of the Atlantic, but I don't think those fundamentals have changed in any way. I'll give you a few uh, fun angles to that. When we talk about special relationship, it's got, it's got lots of different strands, but one of the fun ones to talk about is the language. So uh, divided by a common language is the famous phrase in this one, and <laughs> I'm a professional diplomat, and I love the, 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 the example of this I love to use is the one that you just used. The word to table in American English means to take something off the table. In British English, it means to put something um. on the table. And <laughs> tabling is a new suggestion. Uh, and the reason I picked that example is because even in our world of diplomacy, international relations, where we think we're all talking the same language, there are times when we're not, or at least we need to be extremely careful to make sure we understand each other. And that actually doesn't matter which side of that conversation you're on, but it's always worth, um, it's always worth having in mind. So we do share language, we do share culture, whether it's films, whether it's um, movies, whether it's pop music. Um, I've seen estimates that up to 23% of Americans have British ancestry, obviously includes the the president. Um, The queen has met 11 presidents. We have this fantastic asset, sort of continuity in the royal family. The the knowledge that that is there um, is simply extraordinary. And she's visited 14 states, which I'm not sure everyone would know. And I wanted to pick up this point about higher education. The integration of our absolute elite knowledge, science, research um, is extraordinary. Between the US and the UK, we have seven of the top 10. And I think it's all but four of the top 20 uh, ranked universities, according to the latest QS rankings, internationally. We have about 50,000 Americans study in the UK. I don't know what figure is the other way, but I bet it's you know pretty impressive. And we have 26 Nobel Prizes between us that are collaborations. Um, And so when you look at this higher education area, of this knowledge and skills, and building what the future looks like to to take up that theme, it's going to be something that we have traditionally worked on together. And we want to make sure that that's continuing to matter. And sometimes people talk about these sort of cultural links in a slightly dismissive way. Oh, that's soft diplomacy or soft relations. Actually, that's the day-to-day stuff. That's the stuff that underpins the goodwill that you take into any of these conversations that we're talking about. on the trade side, you know, it's a it's, it's a truism to say our economies are deeply linked. But, you know, the, I'm not sure the level and the statistics are always fully understood. I'm sure people in this room do understand them. But the UK-US trade is more than 200 billion a year. You know, that's not something anyone is going to want to put into any kind of um, peril at this point. We have more than a million Americans in the US work for British companies. And um, that's a figure we would want to have go up, not down. But it is a pretty impressive figure. Um, America is the largest single destination for UK outward investment, as you just said. And I think the US is also the biggest single investor in the UK. So again, that investment relationship is something we're going to want to preserve and have flourish for the sake of both, our, uh, both of our economies. Um, it's important to be clear about what the there are going to be some changes. The UK is going to leave the European Union. And that will obviously require US investors to look very carefully at what their relationship with the European Union is, um, where their staff are going to be for Europe, are they going to be in London, are they going to be in other parts of the UK, are they going to invest in Europe in some kind of balancing way, but we're very clear that the fundamental reasons why people picked London in the first place to to invest, um, many, many of them are not going to change, and partly that's the language, partly it's a really cool place to live, partly it's the flexible workforce, partly it's regulatory framework, you know, there are lots of things which haven't changed and won't change. And there are some that, some that will. But there's not as, as simple as, oh, now everyone's going to have to leave London and go and work in Frankfurt. It, it's much more complex than that. Um, my career, as you've uh, heard a little bit of, is foreign policy and security policy. Um, special relationship obviously came out of the, the phrase, came out from a particular security context. And I think this is a very interesting part of what the new relationship with the EU is going to be, what the relationship with the U.S. is going to be. Um, the UK-U.S. cooperation in defense and security and intelligence is simply without parallel uh, in the world. So we have um, our troops train together, they equip together, we invest in each other's kit, we do exercises together, we deploy together. We have more than, I think it's 800-odd uh, UK personnel serving, stationed in the US across 34 of the 50 states. It's a really integrated sort of philosophy as well as um, uh, sort of tactical approach we share intelligence we share technology that we don't share with anyone else Um, obviously we have a very close nuclear relationship and the reason I pick that out is because uh, this is not a binary conversation about the US (laughs) or the EU but whenever there is a new challenge or crisis emerging in the world and I've seen a few the instinct like it's in our DNA to say we face this with the US what does the US think what do we think what can we offer? How should we do this together? Who else shall we talk to, <laughs> is the second question. <laughs> um, and who else shall we talk to? Might be the EU as a whole, but frequently it's small groups of countries who have an active interest or influence in the country or the situation that we're trying to fix so it may be a truism, and it's absolutely true we operate together in nato we are the security council permanent members we operate together in g7 there are other formats and um, arrangements of countries in which we operate together whether that's the coalition a global coalition against um, ISIL at the moment but it might be quads and quints and all these sort of diplomatic technical terms. But it basically means small groups of countries getting together to try and tackle um, a a particular problem. And that is always going to be something that we instinctively do with the US. And it's always been something we've instinctively done with Europeans, but not always with Europe as a whole. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. So it's going to be interesting to see how that works. But the overall um, approach to it isn't, isn't uh, isn't going to change. So just talking about... That um, relationship, I'm absolutely delighted by this photo, by the way. <laughs> I was even more delighted that I'm also wearing red today. I must have <laughs> that, that, that was kind of... Um, we have a lot in common right now in, in how our two... Uh, political leaderships sort of came to power and how they look at the world and the particular point is to say they both came into their jobs as a result of an expression of a wish for change which I think everyone has reflected here Um, a lot of people in both societies have felt left behind by the pace of change by globalization by I would also say by the pace of change technologically uh, the pace of change socially and so how both uh, on both sides of the Atlantic, our leadership has stepped up and said, um, in case Prime Minister May on her first day in office, that I want to be able to help that group of people who are feeling left behind. I want to look at economic and technical cha- technological change in a way that everybody benefits from. And I think that's going to be an interesting part of the conversation uh, on both sides of the Atlantic as we <clears throat> look forward to sort of how we do that and can we do that in the context of how we're working together economically. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. It is March everybody knows what's going to happen in March we're going to trigger article 50 I don't know exactly when in March by the way if anyone was going to ask me that I don't know yet (laughs) Uh, but it will be before the end of the month and that will be the start of a two year process Um, it won't be a hasty process so I think there's been a lot of or well, instantly the world is going to change when we trigger Article 50. It isn't. Some of the atmospheric certainly will change in the way we're describing, but it is a two-year process. It will probably pass quite quickly for those who are involved in, <laughs> <laughs> in trying to get this done in that self. But we're not looking for an off-the-shelf easy fix. We're looking for something which is an agreement between an independent, sovereign United Kingdom and the European Union we want it to be a sort of mature relationship that both sides benefit from. Um, we want to... Uh, I won't go through the sort of 12 objectives of the government that they've set out because I can if anybody really wants to, it's a reasonably long list. But the, the themes, I think, are worth picking out. So I'm just going to read some of them that might seem int- um, familiar in a US sort of political context. One of them, regain control of our laws by ending jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice, regain control of immigration from the EU, uh, protect workers' rights and that they keep pace with the changing labour market, seek a bold and ambitious free trade agreement, with the EU, that might be the first one we sign. <laughs> in, uh, new trade agreements with countries outside the EU. But also, you know, as one of these 12 objectives, maintain Britain as one of the best places in the world for science and innovation. Ensure cooperation in the fight against crime and terrorism. And we talk a lot about what's the economic relationship, the trade relationship, the investment relationship with the EU going to be. But there are huge areas of uh, defence and security and Um, what I call national security, counterterrorism type cooperation, which is done through the EU and with the EU and acting with the EU internationally, that the EU may not want to lose and we may not want want to lose because a lot of those sort of transnational type threats, um, we we want to be cooperating to um, raise everybody's standards. So a lot of that agenda will sound familiar here, the sort of priorities, the way they want to go. the EU has 53 free trade agreements, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, we're probably not going to get 53 done in the first year. So there will be this, who do, who do we talk to, which are the key ones, how can they, uh, will there be models for others? There's going to be a, a, sort of a, a big challenge ahead. Conversations about what the shape of the US-UK FTA are going to look like will, in my personal view, um, not be as simple and straightforward as some in the media might make it look, but the goodwill and the determination to do something and to do it well will be as strong as as we're hearing so um, I think one of the important things to talk about is um, Boris Johnson who's our Foreign Secretary always loves talking about the fact that we're leaving the European Union but we're not leaving Europe What he means by that is we support the choice of other European countries to be part of the European project, um, and we'll continue to work together on global security threats, but we're just pursuing a different path. But that path isn't an inward one, it's an outward-looking one. Um, I followed the campaign extremely closely within the constraints of being in Washington at the time, Um, but during that campaign, nobody said they wanted a sort of smaller role for the UK in the world. They all said they wanted freedom from some of these European, as they saw, them, constraints to get out into the world. It was a much more global outlook, want to be trading more freely internationally, want to be acting on a global stage. Um, So that's what we're expecting our future to look like. And it has to be said, if you're looking at close relationships with people outside the European Union, this is absolutely the first one that we think about, um, as do you. I think there's no clearer example of that than the special relationship. So if our question is, what's a special relationship going to look like in a Trump administration and a post-Brexit world, um, I think it's going to look stronger than it looks now, not weaker.
0: Did you have a two-finger follow-up you wanted to add? Yeah, I,
2: I was just—I was very struck uh, by, by your mention, obviously, of close defense and security intelligence cooperation, yeah. which obviously I entirely agree with. Um, I just reminded of, I was having dinner last night with a friend, who I won't name uh, because he holds a, a position in the U.S. government, uh, serves in Afghanistan and is now in a, a teaching capacity at a service institution somewhere in the United States. And he said that he's teaching the future military leaders of the United States and he says that none of them think NATO is worth anything, because they've all served in Afghanistan. And their experience of NATO is some useless Dutch general or some hopeless, tiny little Belgian unit that takes 10 times more effort to support than, they act, than value they actually deliver. And his closing line was, when any serious work had to do be done, we go get the British and the Aussies and go do it ourselves. And so for the the future leaders of the armed forces of the United States, NATO isn't NATO. NATO is the British. Um, And then, obviously, outside the NATO framework, it's the Australians um, who actually, when you actually have to go and take that hill, um, it's the Americans, the British, and the Aussies who go get the job done. And I really wonder what the future will look like in, say, 10 or 20 or 30 years, probably less than 30, when a lot of the veterans who served in Afghanistan and Iraq are at much higher positions, either in the military or on the civilian side, as we see in the current administration. And their experience of NATO and allied cooperation primarily comes down to, you can rely on the British and the Australians to fight. The rest, I'm not so sure about. I think that will go a very, very, very long way in ways that we don't, see and, and can't foresee right now. But in 10 or 20 years, it'll be a reality.
0: Thanks. If I could just uh, ask one fun question, then we'll turn it over to the audience since I see it's, uh, it's almost 125. Um, if I could go back to, back to Brendan, it seems to me that a lot of the negotiations or the lead-up to the negotiation between the continent and Great Britain are premised on Basically, the status quo economic situation in both countries, the relative weight between the two, their sizes, and so forth. But um, I'm wondering if you could don your forecasting hat. I know you've spoken a lot about um, asset price inflation, irrational exuberance, whether or not credit bubbles are on the horizon. And you did reference the backdoor through which the ECB transfers Uh, value from the north to the south. Do you see in any of these underlying monetary trends, ECB or Fed operations, any risks on the horizon that could in turn potentially upset or change either the politics of the continent or the negotiations themselves?
1: Well, I think in Germany itself, with the elections coming in September, um, the transfers through European Monetary Union are a a big, big issue. So you only have to look at um, Der Spiegel or Das Bild to see that there's a, amongst a lot of the German population, there's a resentment at um, neg- zero or negative interest rates at a time when inflation in Germany, if you measure it the same way as in the United States, is near 3%. Um, and so we're getting squeezed negative real rates and what for, basically, to support um, the Italian banks and sovereigns. So that, that's a live election issue. Now, I think the way... The, the elections go in um, September in Germany uh, will have crucial bearing in, in all of this. Um, and that could be the first um, revolt, as it were, against the status quo, if Merkel doesn't come through and be able to win a, a, a new position as forming a coalition. Um, so yes, that, that could be the the first challenge. Um, but on your question of asset price inflation, I I, I think the – um, one, one statistic I would quote, which I'm sure many of you are aware of, is that the German, the Bundesbank, now has a 700 billion Deutschmark credit with target two system, ECB. So essentially, Germany has about 30% of its GDP lent out to the, um, to the uh, ECB, which is then on lent again to the weaker banks throughout the system. That's a huge um, item, and um, if you get any sort of resurgence of tensions in global markets and these spreads beginning to widen out and even more money has to go in to sustain it, I I think these are the sort of triggers that could break the status quo. Thanks.
0: I suppose we should open up to uh, to audience questions. If you can, please uh, identify yourself, and you have an institution or organization that you're affiliated with, please mention that too, and try to keep your questions relatively short if you can. I saw you had your hand up first, ma'am, and wait for the microphone too, please. Thanks.
4: Thank you very thank you very much, Alex Hall Hall, uh, fellow with the Atlantic Council, but also British diplomat. Um, Speaking in my personal capacity, however, um, I very much would like to endorse uh, a lot of what my colleague Samantha has said about the sort of default instinct for the UK to work very closely with the US on uh, all foreign policy, security and defense matters. Um, Samantha didn't mention it, but I would like to say there is also a default US instinct to sound out the British before engaging with the EU or the Aussies or other countries as well. So I think it's a two way process. I think um, uh, the bit I would like to probe the panel a little bit more on is that um, British Prime Minister Theresa May has uh, gambled quite heavily in um immediately pursuing this very strong relationship with President Trump. And although there are these very deep historical ties between our two countries, I would say that Britain has become a little bit more European than perhaps we realise. And on very many significant issues, there are profound differences between the UK and the US, whether it's approaches on climate change or sort of cultural issues like gun rights. or um, And this new U.S. administration has some positions that are completely uh, opposed in the U.K., and there are a significant amount of people in the U.K. who feel quite suspicious towards the new U.S. administration. So I would say it's quite a gamble for the prime minister to pursue a very strong relationship with President Trump. And so the question I have is, and and we saw this most visibly when the new travel ban legislation was signed on the evening of of Prime Minister May's visit here, and she suffered some backlash back in the UK over it. So my question is, um, how long might it take for a new free trade agreement to be negotiated, and what if there's a different administration um, in the US at the time that neg- that negotiation comes to fruition and that new U.S. administration, a post-Trump administration, is more vested back in the wider European relationship again, is there a risk that the U.K. has cut itself off from the E.U. but then left itself mid-Atlantic with the U.S. as well? Or do you think the ties can overcome that? Thank you.
2: Ted, do you want to tackle that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's very interesting. I mean, I, I take your point about the, it's also the U.S. instinct to look at the U.K. This really struck me uh, when Parliament voted on Britain's abortive Syria intervention, that, you know, you get these alerts on your phone, you know. The alert that popped up was, you know, British Parliament votes against. I promise you, you don't get those kind of alerts when, you know, Germany or France or Italy votes. You only get those alerts when the House of Commons votes. And you know a bit, bit of a market signal about who do Americans really care about um, it's the British primarily. Um, it's also interesting if you take a look at Pew's long run polling on this, the nation America likes the best, I think this is a sign of America's sort of inherent good sense, is, of course, Canada, uh, which always comes first. Eighty-nine percent of Americans like Canada. I don't know what the other eleven think. Uh, it must be crazy. Um, but only a little bit below that. Normally, about eighty-five percent is the UK. Very stable. Uh, the third is usually Japan. If it's not Japan, it's probably Germany. Uh, so, but it's quite a little ways down. So, I very much agree. There, there is this connection. It goes the other way as well. Uh, a different, a, a future administration. Let's take that first. My view is that if Hillary Clinton had won the presidency, there would still be a US-UK FTA. Because the UK is going to leave the European Union, and unless we are totally bereft of our senses, we are going to want to do a trade deal with Britain. And I think that Secretary Clinton would have felt the pressures to do that. And I don't think that she is in any meaningful sense, any British, uh, would have felt exactly the same pressures uh, from maybe a slightly different set of supporters Uh, maybe a little bit more Wall Street oriented, uh, but would have felt very similar pressures to do a deal that would probably look fairly similar at the end of the day. So I hope it doesn't take three and a half years. I hope it's quicker than that. But if it's not, and if the next administration is Democratic or Republican, I think the forces of reality are strong enough that this is something that simply any administration that is not certifiably insane is going to want to pursue. That being said, I think we should do everything we possibly can to break out of the old trade negotiation framework. Because trade negotiators like to negotiate. That's where they get their jobs from. But if one looks at the Doha round, and TPP, and TTIP, we're beginning to get a bit of a track record here that trade negotiators who spend 10 or 15 years plugging away at you know, the all-singing, all-dancing, 24-hour drink service trade agreement, at the end of the day, the thing is so complicated and so unpopular, it doesn't actually get ratified. So just a suggestion to these guys, maybe you're doing it wrong, right? Maybe we should try getting the low-hanging fruit, which, by the way, is 60 to 70% of the value. It's not 10%. Maybe we should just try to get the low-hanging fruit and get these guys of a job as fast as possible, and they can go negotiate something else. Don't try to get the perfect deal in 10 years. Get a pretty good deal fast. My personal goal, I suspect I will be disappointed in this, my personal goal would be to have the US-UK US UK FTA signed the day after Britain leaves the European Union. And I would sacrifice almost anything to get that done. I would accept 50% of the conceivable value of a perfect agreement to have it done fast. And then we talk about the rest later on. Big deal.
0: Could I actually follow up real quick with Samantha on a somewhat related question on the future of the UK and Europe? Since you are an expert on security questions, what do you think the British-European security relationship will look like now that Britain will be outside of the common foreign security policy? And in the past, as I mentioned to you earlier, before the event started, I've always considered Britain is something of a bridge or or an axis or a hinge point between NATO and the European Union, between the United States and the Europeans. How do you think that relationship will look like going forward?
3: Um, Just on the trade deal, very quickly, I think I agree absolutely whatever administration we would have uh, here or there would would be negotiating trade deal now. I also think the parameters of the trade deal are driven by... um, a combination of national interest and the wish to get it done, and your US national interest isn't going to change that much with a change in these fields, these sort of interest groups. Um, I think one of the interesting things about the negotiation with the European Union is going to be, I think there are two things. One is the fact that on the other side of the table there are 27 member states, and those 27 member states don't all agree with each other on everything and certainly not on what they want the UK's contribution or relationship with the European Union to be. Some of them are um, extremely close to us on sort of security issues and have seen that as a net benefit that we bring to the union. I think most people would actually agree with that. So they will be... There will be an internal debate amongst the 27 on a range of different issues about what the relationship with the UK be, but I would imagine the security one will be one of those, where um, some countries will, will say, well, we should try and keep the UK contributing in this way, and therefore it is worth paying something else out to get that. And other people will be saying, on principle, absolutely no, we don't want to cooperate with the UK on anything. Um, and even if we lose some capability on the security side... Uh, or the um, intelligence side or something, then that's a, that's a price worth paying. So I think there will be an internal debate within the 27th. Speaking for the UK, I think we um, we will be thinking about how much of a positive security, defence, CTE, whatever you want to call it, relationship with Europeans can we maintain and keep. Um, I think our, our fundamental view on um, the difference between NATO's role in the world and European specifically defense policy uh, isn't going to change and we're not going to stop saying it just because we're not sitting at the table. We will carry on saying it and we'll carry on saying it to people who are going to be at the table. So I don't think that will change. Our levers that we use to have that um, conversation will change over time.
0: All right, this gentleman in the front row. Wait for the microphone please.
5: Hi, my name is. My name is Song Zhang, and uh, I'm a journalist from uh, Shanghai Wenhui Daily. My question is uh, to Mr. Tate especially. I uh, uh, talked with you about this uh, uh, future of TTIP, and uh, you said uh, EU is not really for TTIP at this moment. I wanted to know the attitude of Mr. Trump to uh, TTIP, and uh, if he doesn't like TTIP, what... Uh, might be his approach uh, of trade affairs with uh, European Union as well. Will he try to uh, assign more FTAs with uh, uh, France, Germany, and other countries? Thank you very much.
0: When you, when you finish that, perhaps, Brendan, you could also address, just because I know you're active in this area, what the Japanese role might be with the U.K. and these sort of trading configurations that people are,
2: are considering. Go ahead, Ted. Well, first of all, it's impossible for any foreign nation currently to sign a trade deal with France or Germany. They'll have to go through the European Union. So that's – that's that The individual European nation approach is not a starter uh, at, at the current time. Uh, it's been a few minutes since I've talked to President Trump, so, <laughs> so I, I, I have no inside knowledge whatsoever on what the president is thinking on TTIP, except the obvious observation that he's made it perfectly clear his administration does not like multilateral trade deals. Uh, the end of, of TPP, which, by the way, I, I think is a serious and unforced American error, uh, indicates that quite clearly. That being said... As I've I've stated in a number of other public fora, President Trump is not the murderer of TTIP. President Trump is the coroner of TTIP. That thing was dead already. And it's dead primarily because 70% of the German people don't want it. And pretty close to 70% of the French people don't want it. And upwards of 70% of the Austrians don't want it. And I'm not sure about the rest, but the Danes want it. And, you know, I think very highly of Denmark, but that's just not enough to get the job done. And unfortunately, uh, a series of extremely destructive myths have been deliberately propagated about the possibility of a US-EU deal, uh, most of them centering around an amazingly obscure set of arbitration provisions, on which I have been guilty of writing several papers. So I've probably contributed to the fog. Uh, But it is astonishing how unpopular uh, this has become. In the broader sense, though, I think it's a symptom of what I mentioned earlier, that these really big, super all-encompassing trade deals have run their day. That may be a good thing. It may be a bad thing. It may be positive. It may be regrettable. It could be a bit of all of those. But I, I, just, I accept it as a fact that the era of the really super big trade deal is done for the time being. And therefore, since I believe very sincerely in free trade, that it is time for us to do the best bilateral deals we possibly can. And we better make them simple, and they better be easy enough so that anyone can look at them and read them and understand them. Is that too bad? Perhaps it is. But the alternative to taking that point of view is saying we're going to keep on bullying ahead with things that are rejected by about 70% of the European people, which aren't super popular in the United States either. And I really don't think that's a wise course of action. Yeah,
1: on Japan, you, uh, Japan UK, it's an obvious deal to do, and one which doesn't have the handicap of a UK agricultural sector which would conflict with Japanese farmers. So um, the other advantage of a Japan-UK deal is it would very much stimulate German thinking. Because if you give German, Japanese um, manufacturers free trade access into the UK, the, the immediate loser from that is going to be German exporters to the UK. Um, if uh, they're subject to uh, some sort of tax. So it may very well help in, in cat- being a cat- catalyst of that process. And I think, as I mentioned earlier, it can also be something which is a catalyst in a U.S.-Japan um, relationship. So I think Japan is in every way a, a crucial trade partner for U.K., and it's much better to go down that route than what one also hears sometimes of trade agreements with China, which I think would be have a negative impact on all the other trade agreements that Britain would be trying to work out. That's the lady
0: in the back left.
5: Thank you. My name is uh, Jori Kuisper from the Netherlands Embassy here in D.C., um, I have a question about the foreign uh, trade uh, agreements, um, the FTA, the free trade agreements, I'm sorry. Um, I was missing uh, in the story of Mr. Broman, but maybe also uh, Mr. Brown and Ms. Job would like to chime in. What I was missing is uh, the aspect of trade and services, which might be a very big uh, growth potential for both markets, but at the same time uh, would have a big impact on uh, a big shift, most likely, in terms of jobs, which is precisely an agenda that the current president here in the U.S. has been to bring back to the U.S. Uh, and another that struck me in your – in Mr. Broman's um, remarks was the focus on financial sectors and educational elites. And that also seems to contradict the president's uh, agenda of uh, can be standing strong for the regular American worker. So if you could please comment on that, that would be great. Thanks.
2: Well, it's not just the elites who go to college anymore. Uh, but, you know, broadly speaking, I, I do take your point. Uh, let me take them in order – services. Uh, there is out there another international agreement, TISA, um, the Trade and Services Agreement, uh, which is one of these big multilateral initiatives. And I, I mean, I think this is kind of the shoe that hasn't dropped. Is you know now that T- TPP, at least from the United States' point of view, is dead. If TTIP is dead, is is the fire of the anti-globalization? primarily sort of a left-wing oriented crowd, is that turn on TISA next? They haven't really noticed it yet. Um, and maybe we should hope that they don't, in which case, I should shut up immediately. Um, so there's that. On the, the, on the narrowly US-UK um, specifically services side, I think we can go a little bit down that road. But I'd be reluctant to go terribly far. And the reason I'm reluctant to go terribly far is because you get into very tiresome details about harmonization of professional credentials once you start talking about services. You know, what's a chartered accountant? How does chartered accountancy in the United Kingdom compare with being an accountant in the United States? Um, and. You know, in some sectors, uh, for example, a British DPhil is an American Ph.D. and vice versa, and no one really worries very much about the differences between them. There are actually some differences, but no one really cares. Um, but do we really want to go down the road of making a free trade agreement depending on our ability to assess nursing credentials in the U.K. and the United States? Well, there's some value in that. But again, this, to me, falls into the category of things that is probably better avoided. Uh, except, and this comes to the second part of your question, in what I guess you really rightly characterize as more the elite sectors. Uh, look, they're the high value sectors, right? And Wall Street and the cities, is where the money is. And you can frame it as a favor you're doing for the elite, but I would frame, I would frame it entirely the other way. I'm saying, listen. We're not going to do a free trade deal with another country that involves the mass import of foreign workers. We're limiting personal mobility to precisely the areas that only really affect people who are mostly already pretty well off. So if anyone's jobs is at risk, it's the jobs of people who already work at Merrill Lynch, or Goldman Sachs, you know, or Barclays. Uh, and we're precisely doing it this way because we don't like the idea of, oh, sort of I broader permitting arrangements. So I think it rather depends. And education, let's face it, both the US and UK are absolute suckers for spending money on education, as proved by our titanic education budget. So I, I see that as a pretty easy sell if we decide to go down that road. But I, I, think, I think a Wall Street city arrangement is Perfectly sellable from the Midwestern factory point of view. You say, how about those guys face some international competition for once, instead you guys? Yeah, sounds good to me.
0: Want to comment on that or no? Okay.
3: I was just going to say that corporation in the high-tech sector is something which is going to be... Um, the world is going to change again. There is another technological sort of wave of change ahead of us. And if we can get our brightest minds to figure out how we're going to do that in a way which can be inclusive and doesn't bring another wave of people feeling left, feeling left behind, then we should be trying to do that, not getting in the way.
0: Yes, sir.
2: Brian Marshall. I've uh, been working with an international agency uh, for the last few years uh, on various assignments, uh, Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. Uh, if uh, assuming that the United States is still a member of NAFTA, uh, how might this affect an agreement with Britain, affect potential uh, trade and investment relations for Britain with Canada and Mexico? Good question. Uh, there, there have been a, a series of individuals in, in the United Kingdom for years who've argued the U.K. should join NAFTA. And this idea has been raised, again, fairly recently, um, including by by people like Dan Hannon, who I have an enormous amount of respect for. Uh, With all due respect to those people, I think this is a bad idea, however. And I say that for a couple of reasons. First, because although I'm a very strong supporter of NAFTA, NAFTA is now a very old agreement. The idea stems from the late 1970s. A lot of the text was done in the late 1980s. The treaty is a product of the 1990s. If we were to do NAFTA again today, we would almost certainly want to do it somewhat differently. And I'm not, therefore, throwing blame on on NAFTA as it currently exists. Um, Why would the United Kingdom, which has the incredible opportunity, I mean, what an amazing opportunity. The United Kingdom has the opportunity to design its foreign trade structure today. Not 20 years ago. Why would it want to sign on to what is now still, in my view, a good agreement, but a rather old agreement? I don't, I don't think that, that that has a lot of negatives to me. The second and more immediately compelling problem is you have to get the agreement of all three NAFTA nations to let a new one in. There are, there are admissions procedures for NAFTA. It's possible. I don't think Canada would pose serious difficulties. I hope the United States would not pose serious difficulties. I'm less confident that Mexico uh, would not ask for some sort of quid pro quo, maybe from the United States, in exchange for letting Britain in. And then you very rapidly get into a situation where you might end up with not only no Britain in NAFTA, you might end up with absolutely nothing at all. And I think that would be rather a worst case scenario. So I, I think I think the potential gains here for Britain are, are we wouldn't do that kind of agreement today. And I think the risks to the existing arrangements are a little more than I would probably feel comfortable with. So I would I would my mantra is always keep it simple. The simplest thing is a US UK bilateral deal. Getting the Canadians, God bless. And getting the Mexicans, God bless, involved just adds more complications. Don't do it. Related to trade, maybe Samantha,
0: you could uh, you could address this. I'm just curious. One reads a lot here in the U.S. about the repatriation of trade competencies from Brussels back to London. And obviously, you've now set up an entire new department for exiting the European Union. What is the uh, what? How is that process unfolding? Are you just working 24/7, and you and all your colleagues? <laughs> Uh, what's the mood like within the uh, within the within the Foreign and Commonwealth Office and your colleagues uh, across government on that? And then Brendan, uh, kind of related to that, since you're you're in, in the financial uh, uh, services part of of London, um, what is the sense on how equivalency uh, might act as a substitute for passporting, if you can address that, and whether or not um, uh, within the city there's 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 a sense that that can be a sufficient bridge, at least in the short term, provided that. Um, The arrangement, whatever is reached with the commission on how equivalency can or cannot be withdrawn is suitable. Maybe you could go first.
3: Well, we didn't only set up one new uh, government department. We set up two. So um, we had a new prime minister. Um, There was a point last summer where I was having conversations with people in DC, and they were terribly worried. There's there's political instability in London. What's going to happen? We don't like not knowing. Um, To which I quite clearly remember saying, we'll have this all sorted out long before you do. Um, And sure enough, within two weeks, we had a government and a prime minister and new government departments. It does take a bit of time for those things to settle down, for people to work out what the um, relative kind of spheres of influence of the different departments are going to be. And that took a little bit of time um, late summers and uh, into the autumn. That's pretty much settled down now. And I think there's a real sense, and you're seeing it with um, with the debates in Parliament even right now. Everyone knows what the direction of travel is. Everyone is behind. There's nobody standing up in Parliament and saying, we want to roll back the referendum result. I mean, there'll be one or two. But there's a very clear sense of this is going to happen, and we're going to pull together, and now it's about how, and it's about when, and it's about what the parameters, and it's about which free trade deals do we do first. Um, So I think the mood is is a very sort of uh, uh, forward-looking, kind of roll-our-sleeves-up kind of um, mood. I think it's easy to say, oh, the UK hasn't done a trade deal in 40 years. Um, it's true. <laughs> but it isn't true that we've never done any, been in any, involved in any trade conversations. We've been in the European conversations in which those ha- happen. And we have done a hell of a lot of negotiating, not about trade, in that time. So I don't think this sort of vision of, oh, the UK will have no clue how to negotiate, uh, doesn't ring true with me at all. I think there's a, OK, this is how this kind of negotiation works. OK, where can we pull in our trade experience and how can we put all this together but I think that
1: will happen very quickly I mean on this question of uh, equivalence um, and passporting I mean my fear with the any sort of negotiations on equivalence is they become used um, by the EU side to restrict the ability of London to um, develop as a offshore low regulation low tax center so um, it, it might handicap that whole process um, and in, in the, the way global trade and services is going, and, and especially if one has deregulation on Wall Street, it wouldn't be in London's interest to get caught into that particular trap.
0: Mr.
2: Yes, my name is Mark. I'm with a foreign policy journal called Providence. And my question is on how will. El- you know, whole multitude, overlapping bilateral free trade agreements affect businesses in Britain, and whether or not they would, you know, what difficulties will they face if they have to adhere to several? Um, is there a risk that there's a trade deal on paper that the businesses there, especially small and medium ones, won't actually be able to adhere to? We'll take a crack at that one. Um, most UK economic activity, like most economic activity in any country, is about people in England or Scotland, uh, or Northern Ireland or Wales, uh, selling things to people who also live in England, Scotland, Northern Ireland or Wales. Because the overwhelming share of their economic activity is domestic, just as the overwhelming share of American economic activity is Americans selling to Americans. So, uh, we should, I mean, I'm, I'm a, I'm, I fully recognize the importance of international trade and finance and indeed services, but we should always bear in mind that, as Gladstone once put it, the strength of England lies in England. Uh, It's not mostly about foreign trade. That said, uh, there is a good theoretical case to be made, and and some scholars have made it, against uh, the idea of having lots of overlapping bilateral uh, or maybe small n number of trade deals. It gets confusing. Uh, I, I don't approach that world because that is the world that I prefer in the abstract sense. I approach it because I think it's the most that can be done at the given time, practically, politically, to advance free trade. Even that being said, it's not all that difficult, because businesses do not sell into some sort of generic foreign market. They sell to a very particular country and a very particular customer within that country, and they have to know the customer and the market they're selling into, or else they're not going to get the contract. And part of that, of course, is knowing the overall terms of trade that are agreed between the two nations that are over the top of it all. So, and I agree with the theoretical case that maybe you're presenting, but practically speaking, I don't. I think this is a deburdening on certainly on the tariff and, and quota side, uh, and it's a modest deburdening depending on what we do on the regulation side. So on the whole, it's a net positive. I'm the first to say that a U.S.-U.K. FTA is not economically revolutionary for the U.S. or the U.K. That that is an exaggeration. It is a good thing. Uh, It's a good thing economically, and it's a good thing politically because it shows that the two most important liberal economies in the world are committed to free trade with each other. And that's a very powerful political and economic signal. But this is not something that, considered from the narrow economic point of view, would make or break the U.S. or the U.K. So... The concern you pose is a real one, but I think it needs to be considered on balance. And on balance, it is not very large. Either if you wants to comment on that?
3: And we will apply on both cases on both sides of the Atlantic. If the Trump administration approach is to have a series of trade deals with all the different members of TPP and us, and um, I don't want to go into NAFTA, but you know, there's a. It, it's not going to be an, um, a disadvantage. of one market over the other. It's going to be down to, as you say, the individual companies who know where they're selling or marketing into any given
0: time. Yeah. Yes, sir. Last question. Yeah. I'll wait for the microphone, if you I, will. I
2: can skip the mic. <laughs> no, 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 no.
0: Oh, we need it for the... Right. Thanks.
6: Yeah, thanks. Uh, my name is Gerald Heng. Uh, I have been a Londoner. Uh, to understand this concept of the British leaving the European Union, you got to understand... Uh, why it was in, in the first place. I've been speaking to the common folks in East End and West End London, and they tell me, hey mate, <laughs> don't you know who won the war? Who won the Second World War? I say, I don't know. They say, oh, I heard it was a Germany. Soviet Union myself. <laughs> Germany! Then, uh, the British Prime Minister, Ted Heath, took the British into the common market they never call it european union by the way they call it the common market they're talking about trade they're talking about economic progress and when that he took it took the, the the thing in it was it was heavily debated in parliament and he carried he carried the house of commons and he's only a Tory, conservative prime minister and And up to today, I have got people from the British Commonwealth, the former British Empire dependencies, they tell me, what has got on on to this British? Have they forgotten how great they were when they were building this country and building this empire? Is Is it because of the fog around there that stopped them seeing beyond the borders? So when I when I when I when I got all this I, I begin to feel that the concept of leaving of leaving the European Union is fatally flawed because economically Britain is not doing well. Now and at the same time at the same time don't forget that there are only thirty six percent of all eligible voters in England and scotland and all this all right do you want to just summarize on a question real quick? yeah my question is very simple you have got the biggest market in europe why do you leave it and europe is related to other markets and you can go into that so my my concept is that this special relationship shouldn't exist because the, uh, the British exit, all right. It's right. not a foregone conclusion. Well, so I asked the panelists yeah. whether they could throw some insight into this matter. I think, I, as a matter
0: of global trade, I think I would I would maybe rephrase it slightly and just say that uh, there is a lot of I think worry, hesitation that something like forty four percent of British exports and goods and services go to the continent. Is this transition in a two year period? or Article 50 talks, and subsequently also a new relationship with Europe is going to be established. Is that really um, viable and possible, or are we more likely to experience a transition that then allows eventually to make way over a five- or seven-year period uh, into an an FTA?
3: You can give the technical answer. I'll give the political answer. Um, (laughs) There will be – the two-year period is – if we were doing trade models of the take 10 years as a time um, approach, uh, is a very short time. And I think it's pretty well understood that that there will be a need for transitional arrangements for people to get used to what the new systems are. But what the government's very, very clear about is that those transitional arrangements aren't going to be open-ended and kind of waffly and go on forever. It's really important that we know what's going on, that businesses know what's going on, so that people can plan for what the new arrangements are going to be. So it's a sort of planning process, not a kind of open-ended, we'll talk forever and you know, keep going back to the difficult bits and no deal until it's all sorted out.
2: Yeah. Uh, on the, the trade and economic point of view, Uh, A couple of points, the very broadest sort of level of this. Because of Britain's geographical location, it will always be very concerned with Europe, economically and and security and lots of other reasons. Uh, The European Union, from the economic point of view, is a kind of a subsidy that encourages Britain to pay more attention to Europe economically than it would otherwise pay a rule that will always be very important for it, given where it is. Europe is a low-growth part of the world, and I see no reasonable prospect that it will, in the near or distant future, become a high-growth part of the world. Therefore, the effect of the European Union is to further emphasize the extent to which Britain emphasizes its economic and financial interests in a part of the world that is slow-growing. Therefore, Britain will, on average, in the future, do better by diversifying its portfolio, removing the subsidy of focus on the European Union, and focusing more on other parts of the world, not only including the United States, but certainly including the United States. Does that mean that Britain will be better off in every single year in the future because of changes in European trading arrangements? No. But it is rather like a man who has a job with a company well, the wise man who has a job like that doesn't you put his, all of his retirement money in company stock. <laughs> you diversify. Well, Britain is already diversified, right? Trade with the Commonwealth is actually larger than trade with, you, with the EU at this point, which is astonishing to me. But it's true, and the trends are only going in one direction. I would suggest that, although Europe will always be very important for British trade and other things, that the role of Europe has diminished is diminishing and will continue to diminish and that the EU is a subsidy encouraging the UK to focus on a declining market rather than an encouragement, which Brexit is, to focus on larger and more rapidly growing markets, which must economically over the long run be the right answer. Brennan, the last word.
1: Last word, just on a, fri- a slightly tangential topic, and I know there's not going to be time to go on on this, but my interest would be what's going to be the trade-off to this US-UK trade relationship? What will Britain, by Britain helping the US and multilateral frameworks and other issues, whether it be the Middle East um, or other global policy issues, IMF, um, can Britain get U, US more favorably disposed at, at, to questions in the trade negotiation itself? So, are it's yeah. there trade offs in other areas that Britain should be working on and the US could be working on? Great. That's well, ready.
0: Uh, if everyone could join me in thanking our panelists, it was a great discussion.